It's Thursday, June 23rd, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. While I can lay sole claim to that rather wordy job title, I'm not the only fellow doing podcasting these days, if you don't believe me. Check it out for yourself. Go to the Hoover Institution's website, which is hoover.org, and there you will find a whole raft of podcasts, everything from economics to foreign policy to culture to military affairs, you name it, we cover it. If you want to subscribe to them, go right ahead. It's very simple. You click on the tab that says Publications, then go to where it says Podcast. You subscribe to any or all of what we have to offer. You can also sign up for our monthly podcast, which delivers the best for our podcast, and I have a feeling today's podcast is going to make the cut because our guest today is the one and only Kevin Hassett. Kevin Hassett is a Hoover Institution Distinguished Visiting Fellow. From 27 to 2019, he was the White House Senior Advisor and Chairman of the White House's Council of Economic Affairs. He's also an accomplished author. I defer you to a book of his that came out last November. It's called The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. Kevin, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Oh, it's great to be here. Although the, I have to disagree with one thing you said about me being the one and only Kevin Hassett. Uh, here in D.C., like the most popular insurance agent is a guy named Kevin Hassett. And so randomly, I'll get like a phone call. My house is burning down. <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> and it's like, oh, that's the wrong Kevin Hassett. <laughs> that's funny. So I grew up in Washington, Kevin. And actually, when uh, when I was a young boy, there was a town drunk named Bill Whalen. And so we'd get oh. phone calls all the time looking for wild Bill Whalen. And if you knew my father, that was the last thing my father was. He was the rare Irishman. You didn't want to hear that, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So let's talk today, Kevin, about the economy. And uh, let's begin with this. So you're an economist. Um, How much of your job these days, Kevin, is explaining economics versus just kind of explaining history? Because if you're a millennial in this country, if you're a Gen X or a Gen Z, this is something as an adult you have not gone through, the idea of inflation. So how much of your job right now is just schooling people in what happened in the 1970s, 1980s? Yeah, I think that you, you nailed uh, you nailed it. That uh, you know, uh, Bill Dalio, who's a really brilliant guy, he's got some like some unusual things about him too. But but he, I mean, Ray Dalio, yeah, he he actually says that uh, he noticed really early on that uh, things that happened, uh, but he didn't experience when he was a grown up tended to have a big impact on what markets actually do. So there'd be something that like everybody participating in markets right now had never seen. But if you look back in like the 30s or the 50s or something, then we had gone through exactly that thing. And so he started studying, you know, with his most successful of hedge funds, basically just like the last time something like this happened and found that he could gain insights that everybody else lacked. And uh, you know, I'm I'm old enough that I've seen a lot of this before, uh, and I also study history. And I think you're exactly right that that there are a lot of things right now that echo the '70s uh, and '80s. Uh, but but the thing that's different, I think, the, that's most different and has the biggest impact on my life and even on my mood, is that um, even in the the '70s, even Jimmy Carter. Uh, and certainly, if you go back to like you know Musgrave, Dick Musgrave advising. Uh, President Kennedy, you know, that they've always been like smart economists in the White House, sort of like reminding the president of like the laws of supply and demand. And, you know, I don't mean in any way to criticize, I've got some very good friends that work as economic advisors for the president, but for some reason, you know, normal economics is just dead in this administration. And, um, you know, we could give you many examples, but like they're in denial about inflation, but they, 
you know, lit demand on fire and attacked supply, I mean, you got lots of demand and not much supply, then you get inflation. You know, one of their solutions to help stop or help people with inflation is to mail checks to people to help them pay their higher gas prices. You know, but if you're mailing checks to people, you're feeding demand. So you're actually feeding inflation, you know, even to the point where uh, like the factually challenged and economically challenged assertions, uh, uh, you know, really uh, would take just like a minute of analysis to, you know, reject letting the president and the staff sec process say it. But, you know, how they're calling it Putin's inflation. Right. So the idea that it's Putin's inflation is like you can sort of say, well, if uh, Russian oil was removed from the global market because oil prices are set in the global marketplace, then there'd be this huge reduction in uh, global oil supply. And so therefore, the price of oil would go up a lot. And that's sort of like the image that the Biden administration is portraying on oil. But if, if you actually look at it, you know, China and India are buying, you know, chunks of Russian oil. Their their uh, sales are actually up uh, since they invaded Ukraine. And so I'm not saying that the war is uncorrelated with price movements, but this idea that the removal of Russian oil from the global supply is why the U.S. has higher prices. Like even if you go back just down to the, the basis of like Russian supply, what they're saying is just wrong. Uh-huh. And and so I, you know, I'm very disturbed uh, because uh, you, what you need when you have a country in crisis and we're in crisis and heading towards a worse crisis is, you know, a set of policymakers, hopefully in both parties, that understand what's going on and say, OK, here's what's wrong. Uh, and then they come up with a plan uh, that fixes it based on the analysis of what the cause is. And instead, what we've got going on here is is just basically denial uh, misdirection and and finger pointing, uh, and that's a recipe for you know falling further and further behind uh, when it comes to fighting inflation. So, Kevin, right now we have Larry Summers, the uh, <clears throat> Clinton uh, Treasury Secretary, former Harvard president, renowned economist, uh, taking arguably one of the biggest victory laps I've seen since Winston Churchill in September 1939. Summers saying we're headed for inflation. Aha, a year later, I told you so. On the other hand, you have liberal economists. I'm not going to name names Paul Krugman, but uh, economists who have said that you can spend trillions in stimulus money and it will spark demand for services, yet you won't get inflation. Kevin, why do very learned people, very, very scholarly people, how do they come to different conclusions on this? Is this just as simple as you believe what you choose to believe? Um I, I think that, you know, that they're, they're, let's just say that I can think of watching my economic colleagues uh, behave, uh, that there are like, you know, multiple uh, categories of misbehavior. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, category one, which is the most innocent, is that uh, you just got the economics wrong you know, maybe because there's a literature that is older that you read and believed and the newer literature you either didn't read read or didn't believe, but you have like an earnest belief. And, and so I would say like the, the 70s uh, style Keynesians had a view about how like, you know, the government could increase or reduce government spending and smooth out business cycles and, you know, even Alan Blinder, who I think still considers himself a Keynesian, wrote like this really well done literature review piece that basically said, well, none of us believe you can do that now, because by the time the government gets around to spending something, you know, then the recession's over and you're just making the recovery too strong and causing inflation. He wrote this paper about a decade ago. But, 
But you know, there are people that basically uh, adopt theories mm-hmm. that you know prove to be wrong, but they hold on to them longer than others, either because they get lazy or because they have really strong priors, and it's going to take a heck of a lot to right. discourage them from thinking about it that way. You know, a second set of uh, mistakes that economists can make um, is, is you know it's much more ominous. Um, in the sense that they'll say things that are uh, like clearly not supported by any space in the economics profession mm-hmm. um, or by like even simple human logic, but do so for partisan reasons. Uh, and so, uh, you know, an example of this would be the 17th or so Nobel Prize winners who said that Biden's Build Back Better uh, would reduce inflation. Um, you know, that there's just not a model that's consistent with that assertion of any stripe. Right. Uh, but, you know, the person who coordinated the letter is, is uh, George Akerlof, who's the husband of Janet Yellen, who, you know, I have high regard for. Mm-hmm. And he's out there basically pushing Biden policies with the authority of Nobel Prize winners. Um, you know, thank goodness people ignored them. But I, I think that that effort um, is emblematic of the kind of thing that you see uh, and, and all the time um, that, that partisanship has taken over the economics profession. Um, if you're not a far left person, then like other than Hoover, there's no place for you to go. Uh, even the right wing think tanks are canceled uh, in the sense that my old haunt, the American Enterprise Institute, they had this guy who doesn't even have a PhD in economics working with Bill Gale at Brookings to trash the corporate tax uh, cuts with fake data. You know, and, and so sure, maybe the New York Times and Brookings are going to like you more, but you're basically just playing a, a partisan game. And that partisan game is really harmful because there are things that we know that can improve uh, the state of the economy and help people. And when you deny them, um, sure, maybe you're like helping your political tribe, but you're hurting Americans. And I'll give you like my favorite and the most important example of this that that you remember uh, back uh, maybe one of the first times you and I talked, we were talking about how the corporate tax cuts would make blue collar wages go up. Right. right? And um, and of course, there was a lot of ridicule of that idea by, you know, basically the Democratic partisan economists. But then what happened was after the tax cuts were passed, blue collar wages did go up a lot um, by about $6,000 for the median family by the time uh, right before COVID struck. And income inequality in the two years after uh, the Tax Cuts of Jobs Act uh, were, were, was passed declined uh, sharply. Uh, you know, Wage growth for the bottom 10% was the highest uh, for any decile. And so what's like the one thing that these left-wing economists uh, like Thomas Piketty and Emmanuel Saez and everything. What's the one thing that they've been teaching us, you know, supposedly in a nonpartisan way forever and ever that economists have paid too little attention to income inequality, right? Income inequality is like the, the, a key factor in the measurement of social justice that it's the most important thing that policy could affect. Well, sure, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's 100% true. Uh, if uh, the policy of like basically socialist redistribution that Democrats tend to advocate is you know up for debate, but when Republicans actually put policies forth that reduce income inequality sharply and help the people at the bottom ten percent more than any other decile, uh, then it's crickets, it's silence. Like have you seen one paper where they say, well? 
you know, I'm sure it wasn't the Trump tax cuts, but let's think about why income inequality declined during the Trump years, right? right? Have you seen one paper like that? Well, the lack of intellectual curiosity, the absence of intellectual curiosity marks uh, in my mind, like the utter demise of the economics profession. The, the departments have been taken over by partisans, democratic partisans uh, who are interested in like this kind of weird hyper-partisan, the competition, this weird hyper-partisan world that we live in. And that's not the economics that I grew up looking at. Um, and it's sadly the state of economics today. And, you know, when I think uh, even just to go outside of it about the way the Stanford faculty attacks Scott Atlas and in retrospect, just about everything Scott said was correct. Right. You know, that, that if there were a Democrat in the White House and Scott Atlas was there saying, no, actually, Fauci, I think you're wrong about this. We should do it that way. You know, then he never would have been censured uh, by Stanford. It's just that the idea of being Republican is so repulsive to 99% of the faculty members at every university that science is just tossed out the window. And, and so, so when I'm thinking about why people get stuff wrong, I think there's like honest mistakes and then partisan mistakes. And I think we live in a world where the dominant mistake is in the latter uh, set. Yeah, I agree with you. So two years ago at this time, Kevin, you would have been uh, working in the White House and your job would have been to go out every afternoon and stand in front of the cameras and joust with cable news. And what always struck me at watching these, that you always had a smile on your face. I, Trump must have called you smiling, Kevin, at one point, because <laughs> you, you do have a natural smile to you. Uh, but a question, if you're trotting, as you're going out right now in front of the White House and trying to explain the current economy, uh, what is there anything to smile about? In other words, is there any good news to report here? Well, I can tell you what, what we did, and, and this is like another uh, example of uh, like how there's just like fundamentally different roles for Democrats at the White House than Republicans. So, so I can see the shutdowns are going to cause like a terrible economic disruption. Mm. Um, I talked to President Trump in the Oval with uh, Larry Kudlow about like, so what are we going to do? And, 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 and I, you know, basically, of course, uh, with Steve Mnuchin was involved with this too. We are like, well, we have to design a stimulus package that builds a bridge to like the side when the economy opens up again. Right. And, um, but we also have to level with the American people and with markets and let them know what's coming uh, because the data are going to be really bad. And I actually did a thought experiment example for the president, uh, which he's a very smart guy with numbers. You know, it's like he's always doing contracts and stuff like that. They said, if you shut the economy for a week, then about two, you got about that year, if the economy was shut for an extra week, you have about 2%, you know, like about 150th less GDP. Uh, but when you uh, take that quarter uh, and, and get a GDP release, they'll put it at an annual rate. So it'll be 8% at an annual rate lower. Uh, so if you shut the uh, economy for four weeks, which is about what we did, then when you get the quarterly GDP number out, it's gotta be 32% lower. And I said that 32% lower is the biggest decline in GDP since the Great Depression. Now, I told the president this in early March that Q2 was gonna be around minus 32%. And sure enough, I don't know if you remember, the second quarter was minus 32%. But long before that number came out, I was walking the American people from the White House lawn through that calculus saying, you know, there's going to be the worst quarter since the Great Depression. Um, here's why. But don't panic because we have a plan to build a bridge to the other side of that shutdown. Mm -hmm. And we've studied it carefully and we got this. 
we can give you a V-shaped recovery because we know what's wrong and we're fixing it. Um, and you know, we did get the 32% drop. We did get the V-shaped recovery. And it was because we understood the problem and we defined the solution. And we talked to the American people every minute of every day to make sure they understood what was going on. And even to the point where the um, stimulus bills that we designed to cross, you know, that that very difficult terrain, um, well, they were all passed with unanimous consent in Congress. So we had the Democrats convinced too. So so now, um, you know, we're basically probably in a recession. Um, the, I don't know if you saw uh, the producer price index uh, year over year is now up sixteen percent. Right. Um, and you know, consumer prices will catch up to producer prices eventually. Uh, and so we're looking at the scariest economy that you or I can remember. And, you know, sentiment, uh, Michigan surveys data are uh, lower than they've been since World War II in terms of the optimism that people, people have. Um, there's just a lot of stuff that's uh, potentially going to lead to extreme, you know, black swan disruptions. And once again, like the White House is not doing their job. They should be out there. They should be saying, well, actually, it turns out that this and this and this happened and yeah, they're each contributing. And, you know, we've got a plan um, to, to do that, to do something about that. Uh, in National Review, um, uh, today's Thursday. I don't know exactly when everyone might be listening to the podcast, but Thursday, the 23rd, I posted an article because at Hoover, you know, our job is not to be partisans. It's not to whine about the press. And I guess I've done a little bit about that. It's to propose solutions. It's it's to study things, say what we think is true, and then propose solutions uh, to the problems that face the world. And so I wrote a long piece about what what, fiscal policy can do right now to fix inflation. And we can go into the details of that if you like, but the point is that's what the White House should be doing. Mm -hmm. They should be saying, we got this inflation, we got a recession, you know, here's why it happened. Here's what we're going to do about it. And the fact that they're not doing that, again, you know, if a Republican administration were doing something like that, then the media would be just crushing them for, okay. for basically being out of control. But but right now it's it's like you know, Chuck Todd and all those, you know, basically, you know, pi- hired partisan hack journalists are, are just letting it go. And, and it's a real, real uh, failure of journalism because we need them to press the White House to think carefully about it and propose a solution and the, and the journalists are not. Okay, so take us inside your National Review column and tell us what should be done. Yeah, well, uh, it's really, really simple, right? We've got too much demand and not enough supply. Right. Uh, why do we have too much demand? Well, because the government mailed checks to people. Money, right. And so it's like helicopter dropping of money. But also the government itself is spending money like crazy, including all this. Uh, I know a lot of people at Hoover support this stuff, but I, you know, I'm not an expert, so I wouldn't dispute this, but all this money we're sending to Ukraine. So when the government uh, you know, buys a lot more weapons and ships them to somebody, then that counts as GDP, it counts as demand when the government spends money, it's demand. When the government mails checks to people, then they go out and buy stuff, that's demand. Uh, the government deficit is set over the next 10 years, according to the latest CBO uh, outlook, to, to be $14.5 trillion over the next decade, and, and to be more than a trillion dollars this year. And so if you wanted to like help stop inflation, then what you need to do is you need to take that $14.5 trillion of extra demand and reduce it. 
and you can reduce it any number of ways. Uh, and you know, I go into that a little bit, but it's you know, cutting government spending, uh, in and stopping uh, transfers to people, especially those that encourage them not to work. But you also have to address the supply side. And so the question is like, you know, how do I get more supply to come online? And, you know, there are things you could do to offset some of the terrible judgments that the Biden administration has made about the energy sector. You could, um, a lot of the Trump tax cuts of the corporate side are set to expire for those crazy bird rule budget reasons. And beginning, you know, expensing of equipment begins to expire next year, should make that stuff permanent. And you should take some of the savings you get from reduced demand and do other things to stimulate supply, you know, anything that'll get people back to work, anything that'll get people to buy machines, anything that'll get multinationals to move activity back home uh, on the tax side, you know, should be supported. And if you do that, then you reduce demand, you increase supply. And before, before the Fed raises a single interest rate, before the Fed does anything, then you've taken, you know, a strong step in the right direction of reducing inflation. And um, it's, you know, a little appreciated except for the halls of Hoover, that a lot of people say, and this is actually sort of left-wing propaganda, that it was Paul Volcker that stopped the inflationary spiral of the 70s. But it wasn't just Paul Volcker. It was Paul Volcker and Ronald Reagan, because Reagan uh, reduced demand because he had a big cut in, in discretionary spending, 23%, if I remember the number correctly, and he increased supply with the supply-side tax cuts. And so he put downward pressure on prices with government policy and that made Paul Volcker's job easier. And so you might sort of think, uh, well, that was then, and now we're in a similar state. So what's the world look like if the Fed has to act alone, which is basically the Biden policy? He's focused like a laser beam on inflation, and he's watching it like skyrocket into outer space and hoping the Fed says he trusts the Fed. The Fed could do something about it. Well, the problem with the Fed acting alone is a severe one, and it's underappreciated. Uh, but this is it, that if the Fed acts alone, like, so say the Fed raises interest rates. Well, you know, uh, Bill Whalen's going to be less likely to buy a car, for sure. You know, unless you pay cash, you're such a, you know, you're a rich scholar, right? You're probably out there paying cash for things. But, but you know, so, so sure, you're not going to buy a car. You're not going to replace your washer or dryer. You know, interest-sensitive purchases, you're probably not going to do. You're not going to build a new house. Turns out that uh, new home construction has a huge effect on the economy because if you got a new home, like you just built one, it's empty. And so you got to buy TVs and every couches and everything that goes inside it. If you buy an existing home, then basically, you know, the antique roadshow can fill your house, right? Because right? there's enough stuff already that'll fill your house. But if you got a new one, then we need a house that's worth the new stuff. And so new home sales just stop. And so the couches, the TVs and everything, the demand for that stops too. Uh, and so the interest rate could reduce demand. And remember, we said you got to reduce demand and increase supply. The problem with monetary policy is that as you lift interest rates, that you reduce supply. Because it's like the, the company that wants to add a new machine in its factory or you know, even a whole new plant, the way they do that is they borrow money from the bank and then they use the money to buy capital or they issue equity and borrow money from shareholders and then use that money to buy capital. Well, nobody's issuing equity right now because stock markets have crashed so much. So you're gonna to try to borrow from the bank. And so as the Fed raises interest rates, you know, mortgage rates are up around 6% and business interest rates are up there too. Then what that does is it depresses supply. 
And so if you have a policy to defeat inflation, which is like Fed only, then the Fed only is pushing down on demand and then inadvertently pushing down on supply. And so the Fed has to just go way, way too far or do a humongous amount of damage uh, before inflation is under control because it's got supply going in the wrong direction. Kevin Mark, uh, Zand- Kevin Mark Zandi is the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. And here's what he said the other day in response to the Fed's rate hike, quote, the Fed doesn't have a script and is kind of making it up as it goes here. Fair criticism or not? Yeah, it's fair. It's it, it's fair, but but the point is that the Fed is has an almost impossible job because they're getting no help from fiscal policy. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to a, a piece that John Cochran and I wrote in National Review, uh, you know, well more than a year ago, mm-hmm. when you know we probably wrote the very first piece, you know, in, in popular culture talking about the coming inflation explosion, mm-hmm. um, and we just talked about the you know, John's written excessively about this. He's the one who taught me about it, that inflation has got, has got a big fiscal component. And, and, and if you don't pay attention to the fiscal component, you're going to get it wrong. Well, right now, if I were the Fed chair, mm-hmm. I'd be out there saying, okay, we're going to lift rates and we're going to see what happens, but I need help from fiscal policy. Right. If you guys, you know, and Greenspan used to do that. You remember, Bill, right? Like Greenspan used to go out and say, hey, you guys, your deficit is too big. I can't do monetary policy with a deficit that big. You got to cut the deficit. Right. Uh, but but Jay's not doing that. And I think that's a big mistake. Okay. Uh, I mentioned Larry Summers a few minutes ago uh, as part of his victory tour, Kevin. He was in London earlier this week giving a speech. Here's what he said, quote, we need five years of unemployment above 5% to contain inflation. In other words, we need two years of 7.5% unemployment or five years of 6% unemployment or one year of 10% unemployment. That, that you know, it could be true. So, so, so the thing about that is that if it's a mistake, it's a type one mistake. He has a model that right. he uses that he walked people through where he basically uh, has this idea that there's something called an output gap and you know, we got to basically you know, create an output gap to slow inflation. Um, I've not found that model to be particularly useful um, in terms of out-of-sample forecasting. And so I think that the, the spirit of what he's saying is correct, but the precision um, that he applies to his predictions is, I think, inappropriate, given that he's relying on a sort of back-of-the-envelope model that doesn't have a good record, good track record. Let's shift to uh, stocks, as you're the man who co-authored the book Dow 36,000. For the record, the Dow did hit 36,000 on November 2nd, 2021. Here we are nearly eight months later, and I'm looking at my Yahoo app, Kevin, and the the Dow right now is sitting at 30,573. Let's talk about your uh, outlook on stocks right now. I'll tell you from just a personal anecdote, a very California thing. You start the day behind the East Coast, so the market opens at 6.30 local time, so for years, Kevin, I've woken up and I've checked my app. And generally, life is good when you check the app because we've had a good market for years. Suddenly, I don't want to check my app in the morning because I'm afraid to see what's going on. But you look at the stock market, tell me what's going on right now. You have these, you have these wild fluctuating days. One day, the, you know, the Dow gets creamed by 700 points. The next day, it's up 500 points. And we yo-yo back and forth. The markets are behaving about rationally right now. Um, and the basic idea is that uh, in an efficient market, the kind that Milton Friedman, uh, you know, our former colleague at Hoover uh, believed, then uh, the value of the firm is basically the present value of free cash flow that it generates. 
uh, free free cash flow. You could think of it as basically earnings. It's not quite, but it's almost like how much money does the firm make? You know, they're going to make money over the next fifty years. So take the present value of that. That's what the firm ought to trade at. Um, and so if the interest rate goes up, then the value of a dollar twenty years from now goes down a lot, right? Like so, if you have a zero interest rate, then a dollar twenty years from now today is worth a dollar. Uh, if you have a 10% interest rate, then a dollar uh, 20 years from now is worth like about 30 cents today. Um, and, and so if something goes from being worth a dollar to being worth 30 cents, then that should be reflected in the share price today. Um, for a lot of U.S. firms, like the big blue chips that are in the S&P, uh, they've got lots of money that they're making right now. Uh, even in a recession, they'll probably still be profitable. And they've got a lot of profits in the near term. But on NASDAQ, um, especially, you know, like the kind of companies that Kathy Wood purchased at ARK Investments, uh, you know, they have a whole bunch of firms that maybe have like really tremendously promising futures, but they aren't going to make money, say, for five or 10 years because as they build out, right? Like, so you say you have a, biotech company that has a drug you're sure is going to cure cancer, but it's not going to be approved by the FDA for five or six uh, years. Well, well, then the fact that a dollar six years from now is worth a lot less can have an outsized effect on the value of, of the firm. And, and so uh, doing some back of the envelope math, um, basically given interest rate changes uh, and, and the kind of model I use to think about valuation um, the S&P 500 should be down this year about 20% mm -hmm. and the, because of the interest rate changes and NASDAQ should be down about 35%. Uh, and, it's, and, and so that you know, out or underperformance of NASDAQ is related to the timing of their cash flows. And it feels like, you know, I, now things fluctuate around, but right now, like 20 and 35 would be like my point estimate of what an efficient market would do given these interest rate changes. And that's, that's about that's about where we are. I've heard this described, Kevin, as uh, we're in a confluence right now and that Main Street is now intersecting with Wall Street in this regard. Uh, Main Street being that you go out and you put gasoline in your car and you realize, oh my gosh, I had to put a hundred bucks into, into my tank or I go to the grocery store and hundred dollars doesn't get me much in the way of food. But now it intersects with Wall Street because you suffer that pain. Then you come home, you check the mail and there is your financial statement. You look at your 401k and you notice it ain't what it was a month ago. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that, that you know, there's a lot of evidence that uh, that movements in the stock market, it's one reason why you should think there's a recession right now, that movement in, in the stock market has a big impact on sentiment and even on spending. And in fact, there's a little bit of a puzzle in the literature that uh, you know, stocks are disproportionately owned by the rich. Uh, and, and so there are a lot of people like about the bottom half of the income distribution that their personal wealth isn't really affected much when the stock market moves because they don't own stocks. Um, but the consumption of those folks tends to respond to reductions in stock prices too. It's kind of like the stock market is the, is the thermometer for the country. And when it's above 99.6, uh, then everybody is sure it's sick and then they behave accordingly. I'd like to get your thoughts on personal savings, Kevin. Uh, Northwest Mutual's 2022 planning and progress study shows an average amount of personal savings in this country has dropped about 15% uh, from last year, uh, from uh, $73,000 down to about $62,000. What are the long-term ramifications of people saving less money? Well, I think they have to be careful measuring saving right now because we mailed so much money to people during the pandemic. 
that they had more money than they needed. And, and we actually mailed money to people and told them they couldn't leave their house, right? Right. And, and, and so then, you know, other than like- no, but, you know, you, but you could go online and go nuts on Amazon. Yeah, you get stuff delivered and so on, but still there's only so much yeah. uh, you could do uh, with that. And, and, um, and so the savings rates were elevated uh, and now they're actually uh, unusually low um, but I think in part that's because people have a buffer stock that they built up uh, during the pandemic. And so uh, the truth is that if people start to really think that there is a recession coming, which they sure as heck should, um, then what happens is that people start um, doing what economists call buffer stock saving, right. which means that they're worried that like the husband or the wife might lose their job and then they might not be able to pay the mortgage. And so they just stop doing discretionary spending and hunker down, hoping for the best, but preparing for the worst. And we don't see that buffer stock behavior yet in the savings rate, but I expect to in the coming months. Okay, let's talk about one thing President Biden wants to do, Kevin, that is a federal gas tax holiday. I believe he wants to freeze the uh, gas tax for three months. The federal gas uh, tax is 18.4 cents on uh, a gallon of gasoline, 24.4 cents uh, for a gallon of diesel. Uh, Kevin, I saw some stats the other day. I think this translates to about $3 a week if you drive a minivan, about $2.25 if you drive a uh, regular sedan. This is not going to really change your personal fortunes, is it? No, and 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 you know, economists, you know, and and you know, people who listen to your podcast, they will instantly know what's wrong with this policy. But but I have to tell a funny story about it that actually relates to Hoover. That that back in two thousand eight, I was one of the people, uh, one of the most senior advisors uh, for John McCain. You might recall when he was run for president against Barack Obama, and uh, I was along with Doug Holtzikin in charge of. Uh, the economic platform along with the Senator, of course, too. And, and um, he had a speech where he's laying out his economic platform, but it just happened that I was presenting an academic paper at Berkeley and then at Stanford. Um, and at Berkeley, it, it was like the night before the speech, I did a seminar there and then I like uh, slept uh, in a hotel over there and then took a car over to Stanford and I get to Stanford and I'm in, uh, I, I think we're, we're having the, in the conference room near George Schultz's office, and, you know, Mike Boskin and Eddie Lazier John and, John and John Taylor and you know, all the, the superstars of Hoover are gathered there and I'm presenting my paper. But before I present the paper, uh, everybody's like really mad at me and angry about the McCain plan. <laughs> it says, what a piece of junk you put together. I can't believe I thought you were a smart economist. That was the kind of abuse I was getting. You know, we're friends. And so they're allowed to talk that way to me. Right. And they said, and I say, wait, wait, what do you mean? And they said, well, you know, the, the highlight of your plan is a uh, temporary gas tax holiday. Mm -hmm. And I said, a what? And the night before I had approved the speech, I went through the whole speech and I had approved it. And there was no mention of a gas tax holiday. And so I called up Rick Davis, who's the campaign manager. And I said, what's going on here? You added a policy without asking. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, the political guys say, that it's like a really popular policy. And John knew you would hate it. So he told us to put it in after you looked at the last version. <laughs> he didn't want to have to argue with you before the speech. And what did, what, and what did Barack Obama say about that proposal? Oh, I think he said the correct thing, didn't he? He ripped I, it. I, I, he totally I, ripped it. My memory is that, that, that Barack Obama like, like talked about how the proposal was, was not really a, a sensible one for solving the problem. Um, 
but it, but in retrospect, by the way, because you know John McCain was not a guy who chose what to do based on polls. Right. But like all the economic policies that we designed, we had a lot of stuff that as an economist, I'm really proud of. Uh, the only thing that like, you know, polled at 90% was the gas tax holiday. <laughs> and, so, and so my guess is that the Biden gas tax holiday is something that'll actually happen because it turns out that, that even though it's not much money, people are so affected by gas prices that if a politician tosses a bone their way, then they're happy about it. Right. So the president, Kevin, he wants a uh, he wants a three month uh, tax holiday for the federal gas tax. And he thinks states ought to do the same. And here the plot thickens because I'm speaking to you from California, which has already had this debate. Uh, Governor Newsom proposed this. The legislature uh, had two words for that proposal and they were not Merry Christmas. Uh, in fact, right now, the legislature and the governor are haggling over what to do in the way of a gas rebate. Uh, the governor's plan, Kevin, uh, if you get a chuckle out of this, Newsom's idea was that if you know, Kevin Hassett uh, has a registered vehicle in California, Kevin Hassett should get $400 back. The legislature doesn't care for that. They want to basically limit who gets money to if you make under $125,000, which means a lot of people in the middle class of California get left out. But this gets back to what we were talking about earlier. It's just this desire just to pump more money into the economy. I mean, take $400 for every registered car in California and multiply that and who knows how many billions of dollars are going to be floating around the state. Right. And then you're just going to be uh, igniting more inflation. Uh, the the thing about the uh, state and federal gas tax, there, there's a major difference, which is that, you know, every state but one has a balanced budget uh, requirement. Right. And so if they don't have the gas revenue coming in, then they have to cut government spending and then argue with the teacher unions and things like that. Right. And, and so states will be pretty unlikely to have a gas tax holiday because it's like too agonizing to get everything else to line up. But at the federal level, you know, they could print money and, and so they could they could do it. And, and so my guess is it'll happen at the federal level, but not the state level. Yeah, in fact, Kevin's... Uh, I would oppose it. I just want to make sure no one, you know, right. listens to it on the podcast. And then says, in fact, California's gas tax is actually going to go up three cents from 51 cents to 54 cents on July 1st. Uh, one other topic, Kevin, for you, student loan debt. Uh, Chuck Schumann, Elizabeth Warren, want to forgive $50,000 in debt. Joe Biden's looking at it. He hasn't uh, come out with any, any hard proposal, but he supposedly wants to forgive something like $10,000 in debt. Your thoughts? It's just another example of feeding demand uh, in an inflationary spiral. And, uh, you know, uh, the last time I looked, you know, a, a huge share of uh, student loan debt is held by uh, doctors, mm -hmm. people who have to go through medical school, which is incredibly expensive and lasts a long time. Right. And so you're basically by forgiving student debt, you're, you're basically taking money from working class people and transferring it to college educated people. Uh, and, and so once again, um, you know, as a partisan matter, you know, the Democrats have, uh, you know, 18 to 22 year olds are a key voting block for them and maybe people a little older than that. And so giving them free money is like, you know, normal, Part, uh, politics, partisan politics, it's like giving money to the people who support you. Uh, but if you listen to the you know democratic rhetoric, especially the sort of rhetoric coming from democratic academics who you know fill up the economics departments around the country, then people should be disturbed about the effect of this on inequality, uh, and, and they're not. Um, and that's going back to our earlier discussion: a type two mistake, right? Uh, they're, they're, they're throwing away their economics in order to sort of cement some kind of political influence. So let's fast forward, Kevin, to January of 2020. Uh, 
three, and let's assume there is a Speaker uh, McCarthy in the House, maybe even a uh, Majority Leader McCarthy in the Senate. And we now get down to the business, Kevin, of what the priority legislation should be, what should be SB 123, HR 123, and so forth. What's your advice to these leaders in terms of what they should be pitching economically? Now, not in terms of what we'll see the light of day, because you obviously have a Democratic White House, they're not going to want to play ball in most ideas, but in terms of the Republicans showcasing ideas, which they haven't done much over the midterm so far, but once you get in power, you have to actually start showing you have your ideas. What would you float out there? What would you showcase as your two or three premier ideas? Well, I, I, can, I can say that Majority Leader uh, McCarthy is working very hard on this right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been up there quite a bit uh, speaking with him and with other members, especially Ways and Means Committee members. Um, unlike uh, Joe Biden, who maybe focused like a laser beam on inflation, but then he's like just looking at it in awe. The Republicans are focused like a laser beam on coming up with a bill to fight inflation. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, I think they understand why we have inflation and they've got some common sense ideas for how to address it. You know, I don't want to get out in front and say exactly what they're going to do because I, I myself don't know. Right. But I would suggest that if people want to kind of understand the intuition of how they're thinking about it, they should read my piece of National Review that came out on the 23rd. Okay, then finally, Kevin, uh, the role of think tanks moving forward. Um, the likes of you, you mentioned John Taylor, Mike Boskin, John Kogan, uh, an institution like Hoover, what should we be doing in terms of explaining economics to people and in terms of putting ideas out in the in the public spotlight? Well, I think, you know, I came to Hoover because I think that Hoover is absolutely essential for American life that, you know, in my book, The Drift, I talk about, you know, what's driving us to be a socialist country. And one of the main factors is that, and this was predicted by Joseph Schumpeter in the 20s, 1920s, is is like 100 years ago, that left-wing academics would take over all the universities and indoctrinate all of our kids to be socialists. And if you were a person who stood up to them, then they'd try to run you off campus. And like, you think about all the conservatives that have been run off campus and, you know, how uh, speech is so controlled that... uh, uh, you know, at, 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 at one, one point, uh, like if I speak on a campus, then, then I'll ask people if I had changed the title of my speech from whatever it is to capitalism is good. Mm-hmm. If that was the title of my speech, then, you know, how many people here think there'd be angry protests like everybody sticks their hand up. Right. right. And so, and so the point is that the um, elite institutions are becoming less and less elite around the country because of this ideological bias and the science denial associated with it. Um, and, you know, pretty much like the Irish save civilization by keeping stuff in a monastery uh, offshore of Ireland, that Hoover is the one place that has stayed immune to that under, you now under the excellent leadership of Conti Rice. And so, you know, I'm really privileged to be a member of the team there. And I'm, you know, I think that if, if there's hope to overcome this, you know, it's because when people who want to think, you know, with in a common sense way about the economics of our country have power, then they can call up John Taylor or Mike Boskin or John Cochran and, and say, so, okay, now we can actually fix it. What should we do? And they get an answer. And the answer isn't partisan. It's not biased. It's based on hard scientific analysis. So let's end the podcast on a sour note. It's January 2025, and there's a new administration in Washington. Do you want to be a part of it? Oh. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll cross that bridge uh, when we come to it. Um, I've been fortunate enough to be chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, which, uh, you know, Alan Greenspan, when, who's an old friend of mine, when he heard that I was 
offered the job said it was the most fun job he ever had. Mm-hmm. And, and it really is an incredibly fun job. Uh, and, and there's uh, a real brotherhood and sisterhood of people who've had that job. Uh, and then I had an even higher job in the White, White House hierarchy as senior advisor. That's the highest title you can have in the West Wing. And so, so I've kind of within the White House done about everything that, that a person could want to do. I'm very privileged to be able to say that. And I think being outside the White House, being out in a cabinet agency is less attractive uh, because you're farther away from the action. You sound like our boss, Condoleezza Rice, when she, get asked, she gets asked the obligatory Washington question and she will tell you, I've had the job I always wanted, which was Secretary of State. Yeah, and she was an amazing Secretary of State too. Um, but uh, yeah, I really don't, like they wouldn't want me to be Secretary of State um, <laughs> I don't think anyone, not even my parents. <laughs> so, I don't know. Be careful. Uh, there's a certain, there's a certain Godfather three aspect of this. Just when I was out, they pull me back in. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think that the, as with COVID, you know, I thought I was out of government yeah. and then when COVID struck president Trump, you basically, I was in Australia, um, had Jared call me and say, this is too big an emergency. You got to drop everything and come back in. And, um, you know, fortunately, Hoover was flexible enough to let me do that. And I went back and, you know, was in the middle of, you know, designing project warp speed, creating the data operation, because back then we didn't even know where the COVID cases were. You know, I was the one that built the system to move the ventilators. Um, who would have thought I'd be developing computer systems to move ventilators around the country right in, in March? Uh, but I went back because it was a national emergency. So if I had to envision a world where I went back, it would be because that there was something really pressing and I felt like I would have something to offer to help. Okay, well, Kevin Hassett, I enjoyed the conversation and look forward to having you back out here in California. Maybe we'll have the lights on when you come out the next time. (laughs) Yeah, good luck with that. And great talking to you, Bill. Thank you, Kevin. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. I don't think Kevin Hassett is on uh, Twitter. I checked. There are a couple of random dudes named Kevin Hassett, but that's not smiling Kevin Hassett, so don't, don't buy into that. I did mention our website at the beginning of the podcast. That's hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Kevin Hassett and his colleagues to your inbox weekdays. I mentioned Kevin's book, The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. By all means, check out his column on National Review as well. Anything else we need to plug, Kevin, while have you here no no thank you so much uh, for being here and and it's a real honor uh i'm amazed at how well your podcast is doing i knew you (laughs) went thank you sir for the hoover institution this is bill whalen we'll be back soon with another installment of matters of policy and politics until then take care thanks for listening this podcast is a production of the hoover institution where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.